I remember earlier on, in, uh, at the end of April, seeing a meme on Facebook. And, and the meme, you might have seen it, it says this. <clears throat> it said, congratulations, you successfully made it to the end of April. Welcome to level five of Jumanji. Bring on the murder hornets. Remember that one? And, and I remember laughing, seeing that, thinking on how crazy of a year 2020 has been so far. Right. Uh, if you remember, we, we had the, at the beginning of the year the, the passenger plane crash in Iran that that uh, everyone on board died. We had uh, the locusts in Africa, which are still going on. I haven't heard too much about that. Uh, then there was Mr. Peanut dying right before the Super Bowl, uh, the planter's mascot, the devastation of his loss, uh, all for a publicity stunt, too. I mean, it was really pointless. Um, and then, then maybe even more maddening than that was the up and down season of the Toronto Maple Leafs, and uh, they just we just don't know who they are. Uh, and then, of course, there's the global pandemic. That, uh, as far as this country and Canada, we've been under lockdown since sometime around the middle of March. And uh, so then to hear something called murder hornets that I don't even know murder hornets existed, but to hear that they were now coming was just sort of uh, kind of made me laugh and chuckle at the end of April, thinking. Man, what else is there? It's been kind of crazy. But, but that was the end of April. And I would say, I, I'd say for me, these last couple of weeks, I've, I've really begun to fr uh, feel my soul fray. I begin to feel the, just the, the weight of this lockdown in particular as we're moving into the fourth month of the lockdown. But now on top of that, all of the, uh, the angst that's going on, the, the anger that's out there that's uh, going on that we see in the protests and, and the riots. And, and I think that that anger can be healthy, can be very good, because, you know, what we're seeing here is the potential for, for dramatic change, dramatic change where we, we don't judge people by their skin color, skin color, by their gender or what they believe about certain things. But what begins to happen is we begin to show a, a show love and acceptance and in a, a stronger community and so I, I think there's great potential for that because that that is a noble goal that is a worthy goal that we ought to pursue and and sometimes it takes some anger in order to right some of that injustice and, and especially when we're talking about things like racism i mean black lives matter that's important and it's it's a it's a it's a worthwhile goal but but i'm worried I'm worried that what's going to happen is what we've seen before, because this is not the first time where we've seen some kind of uprising like this. And, and I'm beginning to see the same old cycle that's happened before, where there's, these, there's anger and there's the protests, but it ends up leading to, to anger being treated or directed towards those who are not really the enemy. And, and what ends up happening is the defensiveness and polarization takes place, and instead of change happening, basically what happens is, is we just wait for the 24-hour news cycle to pass, and a new story grabs our attention, and I worry that we're just going to get stuck in the same old situation. And, and so seeing all this anger that's even being directed towards people who are, who are allies, where we're end up fighting over social hashtags and what's the right wording to use, it just makes people uncomfortable as to speak up. And, and so it's just a, it's a very difficult environment, I think, that we're all in. And so for me personally, I think I've felt that over the last couple of weeks and, and just beginning to feel discouraged by that. And, and so when I think about even not just what's happening with the pandemic and the lockdown and, and the race riots, I even think about, you know, we're only in, you know, 
we're in month six. There's still, you know, all of June and six more months to go in 2020. Like what else awaits us in this year of Jumanji? And keep in mind, you know, later this year, we got the presidential election coming and, and all the polarization and the anger and the vitriol that's going to come from that. And while that's taking place in, you know, in the country to the south of us, we all know that polar polarization and anger and hate knows no borders and it will spread further north. And so I, I have felt my hope take a stumble. I, I, have, I have felt very impatient and very frustrated in the situation we're in. I mean, I, I so wish that this morning I wasn't staring at a camera. I so wish this morning that I was surrounded by you guys and we're all together and we could be celebrating Josh's birthday properly and we could be just enjoying fellowshipping with one another and uh, to just be in the same room. And, and so as I've been reflecting this week in particular about how I've been feeling and, and how my, my hope has been, been stumbling, I've, I've realized that it's not because of the pandemic. It's not because of this seemingly unending lockdown that, that we're restricted to only being with five people. I've realized that my hope is beginning to stumble because of how I haven't had the opportunity to or my eyes actually really have been taken off of Jesus. And, and I'm really grateful that earlier this week, I was able to, to vent and share this with, uh, with a number of my brothers. And Ian, who's actually here this morning, was one of them, who was able just to accept me in my rant, just to listen to me, to allow me to take that first step towards putting my eyes back on Jesus. And, and so it made me think about the story of Peter. Remember the story of Peter where, where he walked on water? I mean, the story is this, that, that he and 11 other disciples are in this boat, and Jesus had kind of slipped away earlier, and it's, it's in the, the fourth watch of the night, which is basically between 3 and 6 a.m., which I'm not sure is way too late or way too early, but that's where they're at. And they have this big storm going on. The wind's blowing, and waves are battering the boats, and, and all of a sudden, you know, this, this figure walks out on the water. And everyone starts freaking out because, I mean, you see someone walking in the water and you'd freak out too. And, and Peter starts to think, <clears throat> this is Jesus here. And so he says, Jesus, if this is you, calm me out and I will, I will come to you. And so I want you to just think about the bravery in that moment that Peter has. And, and so Jesus says, come on out. And so Peter takes that step. <clears throat> and too often we don't give Peter the credit that he, that he needs and he deserves for taking that step of faith. And so I want you to imagine for that brief moment while the storm is raging, how cool it was for Peter to be walking in the water, to be just, just the, the peace, the joy, the thrill it must have been for him out there. And, and so as he's, he's getting closer, all of a sudden he starts to realize, wait a minute, this is, this is weird. Like this, is, this isn't okay. I'm, I'm on, on water. And it's not like the, the waves picked up and the wind picked up and, and all of a sudden things got dicey. They were dicey the whole time. But he got his eyes off of Jesus. He got his eyes off of his source of the strength and the power and the peace and the hope that sustained him walking on the water. And he got his eyes onto everything going on around him, onto the storm. And so I think that was, that was my story. That's what's been going on for me, especially these last few days, that, that, that I've just sort of gotten my eyes off of Jesus. And, and I, I'm okay, and I don't, I don't need the water. Thank you. And, and so I've, I've kind of gotten my eyes off of Jesus, and, 
And so this passage here was used by God to help remind me of where our hope is. So let's take a look at the passage that we're going to look at this morning. It's Ephesians chapter 3. For the last time, we're in chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians. And we're going to read verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being here. Thank you that we never have to ask you to be here. You just are. And you love being with us. And you love to open our eyes to your truth and who you are and how much you enjoy us. So thank you, Jesus, that this morning we're going to be able to rest in you. That This morning we're going to be able to experience life in you. And So I'm excited about what you have in store. So we're going to trust you to speak through me and speak to the hearts of everyone here. And I'm, I'm looking forward to what you have for all of us as we experience life in you. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, whenever you come to a passage of Scripture, I, I think it's important to try to understand what, it, what it's saying from a global perspective before you kind of dive in and, and see on the, the details of it. So it's sort of, sort of looking at it from a 30,000 feet perspective before you get a boots on the ground perspective. And, and so I think what I want to do this morning is just do that really briefly here, that to understand these two verses, it's, a, it's important to see that what Paul is doing is he's really concluding the prayer. He's concluding the prayer that we looked at last time, which began in verses 14, verse 14, where, where Paul's prayer was essentially this, that God would grant to us this great power, that we would be empowered with power, this power to, number one, to trust Jesus right now, and number two, that we would know that we know that we know that we know, and that we'd be able to fathom how infinite and how great God's love is for you and I. In that in trusting him and in knowing his love, we would be crammed, that we would be filled to overflowing with the life of Jesus. That wherever we went, the life of Jesus would just flow out of us. And so what we have here is, is what theologians would call doxology, which is just a fancy way of saying this, this, this summary of praise, the summary of worship. And that's what Paul's going to do now. He's going to, these two verses are a conclusion really to the prayer that he begins in verse, verse 14. But in many ways, it's also a conclusion to the whole, whole book up to this point, beginning in verse one of chapter one. And, and, and it's gonna serve as a transition that we're gonna see when we get into chapter four of how now do we live in light of all this. And so now let's start to break it up. And I think there's really three sections in these two verses. So the first section begins in the first part of verse 20. And it says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask and think. My friend Frank, he, he likes to tell his, his people at his church, he says, never read the Bible casually. Which means that take your time, read it slowly, ponder it. And, and this, this is a great passage for us to, 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 to ponder on. So we're definitely going to pause and reflect on that simple phrase there, this now to him, right? So he's, he's, he's concluding. It's part of this prayer. And remember, that prayer was one for power to, to, to be able to trust Jesus, but to know his love in order that we'd be filled, crammed, overflowing with him. Think about that. 
Think about that idea that you and I are filled to overflowing with Jesus. That, that God doesn't just give us a part of him. I mean, again, I, I, in our prayer, I said, thank you for being here. We don't have to ask Jesus to be here because Jesus doesn't come and go. But neither does the Holy Spirit and neither does God the Father. You see, God, yes, he's in heaven, he's up in heaven, and Jesus is up there and the Holy Spirit's there, but he's also here with us. He's in you and I right now. And we didn't get a portion of Jesus. We didn't get a, a part of the Holy Spirit to reside in us. You and I got the whole thing. All of God, all of Jesus, all of the Holy Spirit has now taken up residence inside of you and I, so much so that our spirit and his spirit has become one with, with, with each other. As C.S. Lewis likes to put it, the inside is greater than the outside, is bigger than the outside. And that's the reality of it. Our, our inner man, our spirit that's been joined, united with Jesus, is much bigger, much greater than the outside of us, our outer body. And so how cool is that, that, <clears throat> that we have Jesus? And so it's not that your personality disappears, but now we have access to him. And so I loved how, how Peter put it in 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, how that now we, are, we get to partake of God's divine nature. We, we get to partake of, of his life, and that enables us to experience life in this world, that we now have everything we need for life and godliness. Every challenge, every struggle, everything we're up against, I can trust Jesus in this moment. So let me illustrate to you what that looks like. Long ago, archaeologists, they discovered this, this thing that men and women used to do a long time ago, that they would, when they would go to restaurants, they would actually eat at the restaurant. I, I don't mean they would go to the restaurant and bring the food home as takeout, or, or they would sit in their car in the parking lot. No, they would, they would actually go inside the restaurant, sit down, and eat there. Incredible. I, I know it's, it's, it's hard to fathom, but just picture it. Try to imagine it in your mind sitting down in that restaurant. And, and there were some restaurants that were classified as buffets, which meant that you would take your empty plate and you would walk up to a table and there would be a, a, a tables of, of all kinds of food. I mean, you would, have, you would have pork ribs and you would have barbecue ribs and smoky barbecue ribs and honey garlic ribs and, and you would have steak and you would have chicken, of, you know, all kinds of chicken. And, and I, I imagine there'd be another table, vegetables and greens and salad somewhere. But I mean, they, just there's all kinds of food. And, and if you went to an all-you-can-eat buffet, you could make multiple trips to have as little or as much as you wanted from these, uh, from this table, from this buffet. I know, I know it's hard for some of us who are especially young to remember such a time as this, but, but there was a time where you could do that. Well, Paul's prayer is essentially that we would recognize that God's our buffet. That, that at, at the buffet, we've got, we've got his life waiting for us. And so there are trays of his peace and trays of his hope and trays of his strength trays of his, of his love for others, trays for acceptance of ourselves, trays for whatever you're struggling with, just laid out, waiting for you and I to just go and partake in the all-you-can-eat buffet and, and constantly going to him and experiencing everything we need there. It's an infinite supply. 
That's what it means to be filled up to overflowing. And it's, it's so hard for us to imagine. It's so hard for us to actually believe that, that such a thing exists. And yet, that's it. It's waiting for us. But you see, our greatest problem is that we don't do it. I mean, we do it at times, but we don't do it enough. My greatest struggle in my own life, but also in the, the lives of all the people that I get the privilege to, to meet in the council, is that we struggle to believe that Jesus is enough. That regardless of the situation, regardless of, the, of what I'm facing, that the life of Jesus is enough for me in that moment. But we're not alone. I mean, that's always been the case. Even when Jesus walked the earth and he was right there, that was the struggle. In Matthew 23, he, he's, he's overlooking Jerusalem at the time, at, right before his arrest and, and his crucifixion, and he overlooks Jerusalem and he laments, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to take you under my wing. How I've longed to care for you. How I've longed to provide for you. But you were not willing. And you see, that's, that's our story. That despite the miracles and the wonders that we've seen God do, despite the faithfulness that he's shown to us, despite all that we've experienced, too often we settle. We settle for a poor substitute. You see, essentially what we're doing is we're believing the same lie that Eve believed back in the garden all those years ago. That essentially God is holding out. That, that God won't be enough that God won't supply everything you need, and that you and I need to take matters into our own hands, that, that we need to go elsewhere to satisfy the desire because the desire is greater than God is. And so what happens is we believe that what the flesh is offering us, that the sin that the flesh offers us in that moment will actually be more satisfactory than God is that the sin of, of lust and pornography or the sin of, of alcohol and getting drunk or, or getting high or, or the sin of taking control or, or Netflix and running away from our life or, or getting lost in computer games or, or the sin of self-protection or powering up and taking control with my anger. Whatever that sin is, it's, it's not so much the action as much as that I'm looking to handle it without Jesus that I'm trying to handle life on my own, that I believe that that would satisfy me better than Jesus can, better than God can. And, and so often we even begin to rationalize it and we say that, well, just my desire is so big, that pull is so big, it's just so hard to say no to such a strong desire. And, and the reality is, it's not that your desire is too big, it's that your desire is too small that we're willing to settle for something that is smaller than what's being offered to us. Because think about it, whether it be the Netflix or the pornography or the alcohol or the food or whatever it is that we're looking to for that peace or that comfort or that hope or whatever, it doesn't compare to what Jesus offers us. C.S. Lewis has this very famous quote, and it's so, so appropriate to this. He says this, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy 
is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. You see, what, what's offered to us is something incredible. It's, it's something, really, it's, it's unbelievable. And yet we're, we're, we're not willing to take God up on the offer. And, and so instead of experiencing this great buffet, we settle for something so cheap and in, uh, in an, um, uh, an imposter, a fake. And, and so don't settle for anything less than Jesus. Don't settle for anything great that, that what's real. Let, let me illustrate from my own life, though, what it looks like. Especially over this, these last couple months as we're all struggling with the, the lockdown and everything, I've found my desire for comfort seemingly to, to grow. And, and one of the things I've been doing looking for comfort is, is I have let, I have ate, I've eaten more chocolate in the last 10 weeks than my whole life up to this moment. Now, fortunately, it's dark chocolate. Otherwise, I'd be about three times the size I am right now. But there's something about eating that chocolate that's just appeals to my soul as being a solution to my discontentment. But the reality is what's happening is every time I'm reaching for that chocolate, I haven't been turning to Jesus. I just go get chocolate. I said, that's somehow going to make me feel better in the moment. But the reality is it's not. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that we should never eat chocolate and chocolate is bad and sin and so forth. All I'm saying is that the good people at Lint in the factory there they're not my answer. They're not going to satisfy my soul in a way that only Jesus can. And, and really the question is, why would I settle for something so small when I could go to Jesus instead? Now maybe he says, go grab some chocolate, or maybe he says, go for a walk, or maybe he says to you know, chat with Joy or my kids or, or something else, but that's the point is, am I willing to invite him into what's going on so that I could experience what he's offering me instead? Because ultimately what he's offering is himself. And, and that's what is so, uh, so far more abundantly beyond, as, as the translators try to put it. And the reality is no, no translator could accurately describe what Paul's talking about. I mean, maybe, maybe if they translate it super abundantly more greater, bigger, infinitely larger than you could ever imagine in your lifetime that would start to get closer to this idea because that's really what he's talking about. It, it, it's a complex, complex word that Paul uses here trying to emphasize that what God's offering to us, you can't even begin to fathom. It's so much greater than that. And, and so maybe what I would do to try to summarize it, I would say it in this way, that what God desires, God desires infinitely more and better things for you than you do for yourself. Ponder that for a moment. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that God, what he desires for you, is far greater than what you desire for yourself? Or, or do you struggle with the lie that, that God's holding out on you? That, God, that God's not going to come through. That, that there's more out there that you have to go and find. It. When the reality is, His care, His life, His love, His presence, 
It's protection. All of that has been given to you and I. And it's greater than anything this sin-cursed world can ever throw at us or ever offer us. And so the question is, will we go to him? And that's essentially what this, the second passage is, the second part of this passage is reminding us. In the second half of, of verse 20, Paul goes on to say, so that, you know, now to him that we would experience far greater and more than we could ever ask or think of, he says, according to the power that works within us. That word worked there is, is, the, is the word that we get, the same word we get word energy from. And so this energy, this strength, Paul's reminding us, where is it coming from? It's coming from this power. It's coming from the power of God that is presently, right now, at work inside of you. Right now, where you are sitting right now, Ange, and Jeremy, and Nikki, and and Matt, wherever you are, God's power is present in you. And it's the same power that spoke all of this into existence. Think about that. It's the same power that empowered a group of slaves in Egypt to conquer the greatest nation, the greatest superpower of its time, without lifting a single sword and plundered them. It's the same power that caused the Red Sea to split so they could walk across on dry land. It's the same power that protected them in the wilderness. It's the same power that enabled them to defeat the great walled city of Jericho. It's the same power that allowed Gideon and a, and a few hundred men to defeat an innumerable army and all they had was torches and a bugle. It's the same power that rained down fire from heaven to light up an altar for Elijah. And it's the same power that delivered food by ravens to Elijah and and allowed him and a widow and her child to sustain and never run out of supply. And it's the same power that raised Jesus from the grave, the same power that overcame sin and overcame death once and for all. That is the power that's at work in you and me. That's the power that we have right now. So that, so for example, Marco doesn't have to face this world on his own. That, that Janice caring for her mom isn't doing that on her own, but it's Christ in Janice. It's Christ in Marco. That's what's supplying us. That's, that's what we get to experience. And, and how we do that means walking and talking with Jesus. It, it means it means looking to him and turning to him and, and listening to him, maybe even more than we talk, but, but definitely talking to him. And yes, he knows all about your situation, but he longs to hear it from us. Say, Jesus, I'm struggling with this, or this is what's happening in my life. And, and you can throw at him every single thought, whether it be one of anger, whether it be one of hate, whether it be one of sadness or joy or despair, wherever you're at, just start talking to him. But then listen to him. Listen for his take. Listen for his perspective. Invite him to show to you what he's doing. See, Romans 8, 28 tells us that that all things work together for our good. That the end of it will be good, he promises. And so God, right now, it doesn't feel very good, which means it's not the end. So what is it you're doing? What is it that you're bringing about? 
Where's the good? What's happening, Lord? And so talking to him and listening to him and then inviting Jesus in that moment to lead us to face the challenge that the moment demands of us. So Jesus, right now, the, the kids are driving me crazy or I'm struggling with work or the, the balance of, of, of home and work or I'm struggling with the loneliness or, or I've got fears and anxiety of what if I catch COVID or, or whatever it is that you're up against you're struggling with. Invite Jesus to say, Jesus, how do we face it? What do you want to do right now? And then trust him in you, through you, to challenge, to face the challenge. Because as Galatians 2.20 says, it's no longer the old me. It's not me on my own, but now Christ who lives in me by faith. And so that's the glory of, of you and I, of the church, is that we're never on our own anymore. We're always a we. Is Jesus in me, is Jesus in you facing the challenges of us? And what happens when we do that, when we remember that, and we don't settle for what the world's offering, we don't settle for the fleshly solutions, we don't look to this world and the, the storms that this world has. Instead, when we're looking to Jesus to be the answer, not only do we experience peace, not only do we experience joy, not only are we empowered to face the challenges of this world, but ultimately God is glorified in all that. And, and that's the point of the passage here. See, that's the third part of this passage in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, and verse 21 as well. So God's able to do more than we can imagine or think according to this great power that works within us. To Him... To Jesus now be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's, let's unpack that verse backwards. So first part there is talking about to all generations forever and ever. To all generations could also be translated as to all nations. And the forever and ever just means for all time. And so whether it's it's all nations, meaning the whole world, or all people, for all time. God's going to be glorified in all this. God's going to be glorified in what he's doing through you and I. You see, often what happens is when we think about glory or worshiping God, we often link it to music. I mean, we even label the, the time where we're singing as, as the worship time, a time of worship. And, and we have worship music. And, and so we often link it to, to music. And, and I think that, that, that all music is meant to be a worship to God, whether we're, we're singing about what God's done or, or, or whether we're singing about God's love for us. All of it is magnifying who he is and what he's done. And that is an opportunity to worship and glorify God. And that there's something about music that is it's so beautifully done. I mean, just watching the, the, the time of worship, the, the singing this morning was, was incredible. And it was beautiful to watch, watch Nikki and, and Deanne and Ian just worship our Lord and Savior. And, and maybe you're at home and you were singing along or, or just enjoying that time of worship. It's cool to be able to do it through song. But really, that's just a, that's a small piece of how we get to glorify and worship God. A, a much bigger way that you and I get to worship and glorify God is really simply by trusting Jesus, by letting Jesus live through you and I. 
See, Peter put it in this way, and, and we're gonna look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. I want you to see, he uses a lot of similar language that Paul's using in Ephesians chapter three here. But what, Paul, what Peter says in, in chapter four and verse 11, he says this, that whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So, so think about it. It's, it's when you're speaking, let that be the words of God, which means you're listening to him and then you're trusting him to say it through you. Whenever you serve, whenever you're acting, whatever you're doing, you're trusting that the strength and the power of God in you is doing that. Why? Well, the rest of the verse goes on to say, so that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Because it was actually Jesus in you speaking. It was actually Jesus in you serving. That's how he's glorified. Because the reality is the only person that can glorify God is, G is God himself, is Jesus. And so as wonderful as the, that time of worship may be, if it's not Christ in us, it's fruitless. Because apart from Jesus, you and I can do nothing. And so, so God is glorified by Jesus living through us, providing the strength, providing the power, providing the words through you and I as individuals, but it's amplified through us as a church. And that's what's really cool here, that it's, it's amplified through something greater than that. And, and so in this passage we've been looking at in verse 21, he says that through all generations forever and ever, God will be glorified through Jesus. I, I think that's self-explanatory but also amplified or also glorified through us as his church. And that's what Jesus was praying for. In John 17, the prayer that he offered right before he was arrested, I, I think personally, this is the Lord's prayer. That name was, we gave that name to, to another prayer and we call it the high priestly prayer. But essentially, this is the prayer I think that God's wanting to pray over us. And so he says this in the beginning of verse 20. After praying for himself and praying for disciples, he prays for you and me. How cool is that? I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the disciples, but, but for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. That, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them, and you and me. That they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may be, know that you sent me and loved me, even as though you have loved me. That's, that's Jesus' prayer. And as I, as I reflected this last week, I... I listened to a few excerpts of messages offered by a man named Tony Evans. And Tony Evans is a great pastor out of the Dallas area. And he says this is God's unanswered prayer. It's an unanswered prayer because he says, are we really united as a church? You see, the, this last couple of weeks, as we said earlier, has is, is given us a great opportunity to pause and reflect on how we treat people, particularly people of different skin colors or different backgrounds. And, and again, the debate is, is necessary and important, but as I listen to the debate, I'm hearing a lot of anger and a lot of hate. 
And and I, I'm getting worried because I know the answers that this world is putting forward are all ultimately insufficient. Because what the world is crying out for is for a change in the system. It's a change of operating, but it's not going to work. Because ultimately what they're asking for is new laws and different laws to legislate a behavior when the problem isn't really the behavior. The problem starts in our hearts. And what we're seeing in the, in, in the racism and the hatred and the, and the attacking of one another is just a symptom of the darkness of, of our hearts, of man's hearts apart from God. And what this world requires, what this world needs, is not, not a regime change or a system change or, or a different government leader or a different government. It, it needs a heart change that only can be done through Jesus Christ. That's what this world needs. And, and when that happens, when that world begins to, to trust Jesus and, and, and individuals begin to offer themselves to God and there's a change in heart, that's what can lead to a cultural change. That's what can lead to us changing how we treat one another. And so as I reflected on this week, or this past week on, on what's happening in, on this prayer in John 17, I've reflected on the church, and I've asked myself the question, has the church failed? And is that why we're seeing so much uh, unrest right now? Whether it be the racism or the, the riots and the protests and the anger, has the church failed? And I, I got to think to some degree, I'm not putting all the blame there, but to some degree we have. Because, and, and here's why I think it is, because I think we've lost sight of our mission. You see, it's too easy for the church and churches to just begin to become very inward focused, where we focus and fix our minds and our eyes simply on, on our own little kingdom, our own little spot. And it's all about enlarging our own little kingdom. And so we might be tempted to think, well, how do we grow new life fellowship? And how do we make new life bigger and better and, and just be fixated on that and lose sight of the church of new life is just part of the church and and there's a much larger larger kingdom that god is advancing not us and not what we're trying to advance but i think that's where the church has failed and we become competitive and we begin to attack one another and, and we're not operating in this unity that that jesus prayed for in john 17. and what ends up happening is is as a church, as a group of people, we become more known for, for just beating people up because they're not acting in certain ways. Or we even attack one another because there's differences, whether it be different styles of worship or, or different things that are, aren't really major and central to our faith in Jesus. As many have said, we major on the minor things and we minor on the major things. And we lose sight of the heart of what really matters. You see, in John chapter 13, the night of Jesus' arrest, hours before he prayed that prayer in chapter 17, Jesus, he spoke to his disciples and he says, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. That's basically it, that you love one another. That's all, that's, that's all he's asking for us. Even as I have loved you, that you would love one another. And by this, all men, the whole world, all nations, all generations, forever and ever, 
will know that you're my disciples. If or since, really, you have love for one another. You see, that's how we ought to be known. How we love each other in, within the church, our brothers and sisters. And, and then how we even love those who are not in the church. That we would care for them. Now, please understand that that doesn't mean that we tolerate and, and we just turn a blind eye to sin and unrighteousness. Because the reality is love, love actually will confront that at times. Love will actually step into the arena and says, because I love you, because I care about you, I want to make sure that you know that what you're doing is hurting you. But not in a way to condemn them, not in a way to beat them up, not in a way to make ourselves feel better, but really because we're doing it out of love, out of sincere motives, because we care for them. And we get to love them right where they're at. Whether they're like us or not, whether they're different or not, we just get to love on them. Now, how do we apply this then? I'm, I'm not asking all of us to become social justice warriors and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and, and you know join the protests and so forth. I mean, if God calls you to do that, then do that. But that's really what it comes down to is what is God calling you to do? And so I want you to ponder this question. How is Jesus inviting you, inviting me to be a part of his kingdom and what is he, what's he doing today? How is he inviting us? Where is he inviting you and I to step into, to engage in what he is up to right now? Because make no mistake. Again, I, I just keep quoting C.S. Lewis. As Aslan would put it, as, or as C.S. Lewis put it, Aslan is on the move. Jesus is on the move. Jesus is doing stuff. And so in John 14, verse 12, Jesus put it to us this way. He says, whoever's trusting in me, whoever's relying upon me, that's what that, whoever believes in me, not just a faith for salvation, but in this moment, present tense, the works that I'm doing right now in 2020, in the midst of the murder hornets, in the midst of the pandemic, and in the midst of the up and down season of the Maple Leafs, in the midst of everything that's happening, if you believe in me, if you rely upon me, you will be a part of it. You will be doing it also. And so how is he inviting you and me right now? And please understand, I don't think God's trying to fix the culture. I don't think that's our goal. I think that's to be the byproduct. What God's more interested in, and he's always been interested in, is the hearts of men and women. He's interested in your heart. He's interested in my heart. He's interested in your neighbor's heart. He's, he's interested in the heart of those who hate you, those who attack you. And so remember, our culture is the product of this sin-cursed world. And we're never going to be able to fix it, especially using the tools of the culture. All you're doing is you're getting the flesh to fix the flesh, and it's just going to be more flesh. That's not the answer. Instead, will we turn to Jesus? Will we be a part of what he's doing, accept his invitation to wherever he's asking us to, to be and to do, and to love those around us? our family, our friends, our enemies, our neighbors, our strangers, even those who disagree with you. Oh, please do that. 
Please do that, especially at a time of this. May the church stand out. May you stand out as being an instrument of love because that love will bring change, will change people, will change hearts. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful and we thank you that that no matter what we face and no matter what we're up against, we have you. That we can rely on your power and your ability and that you through us can love our neighbors, love our family, and provide peace even though we're in the midst of the storm. So I pray that every one of us would fix our eyes on you, just like Peter did. We would look to you and be able to walk on water. Rise up on these waves and rise up on the storm and walk on this water and experience the peace and the joy and the thrill of watching you do things, watching your kingdom be advanced, watching you be glorified through what you're doing through us. Because you've earned it, you deserve it. You're the one that, that the only one that deserves it. And so thank you that we get to be a part of it right now. Thank you that we get to worship and glorify you. In your name we pray, amen. Have a great day, new life. Enjoy one another. Keep the chat going on uh, in the Facebook group, texting one another, phoning one another. Uh, you know, Say hi to people as much as you can and just continue this love so that may new life, may the church be known by how we love one another. God bless you guys.